Welcome to NGA Notable Lectures, a podcast offering a deeper understanding of all things artistic. The studio life of Anne Truitt, 1921-2004, is explored in the Focus exhibition, In the Tower, Anne Truitt. The first major presentation of Truitt's work at the National Gallery of Art, the exhibition celebrates the museum's acquisition of several major artworks by Truitt in recent years, including seminal works from the collection of the Corcoran Gallery of Art, as well as several outstanding loans. Bringing together nine sculptures, two paintings, and 12 works on paper, representing the different media in which the artist worked, the exhibition traces Truitt's artistic development from 1961 to 2002. One of the most original and important sculptors to emerge in the United States during the 1960s, Truitt is unique in the field of minimalist art. She hand-painted her sculptures in multiple layers to create abstract compositions of subtle color in three dimensions. Her art is infused with memory and feeling, unlike much minimalist art, and while most of her peers were based in New York or Los Angeles, she worked alone and independently in Washington, D.C. For a public symposium held on January 19, 2018, Anna Lovett focuses on Truett's writings, particularly those passages concerned with artistic materials. These passages move between a relatively straightforward, practical documentation of materials and techniques and a more subjective identification with substances such as wood and water. Referring to Gaston Bachelard's Water and Dreams, an essay on the imagination of matter, Lovett argues that Truett is an artist who dreams with substances, and that by considering her approach to materials rather than the formal properties of her sculpture, we can gain some new and surprising insights into her work. In the first of her three published journals, Anne Truitt complained of the endless inventories required of an artist, lists of works with dimensions, prices, owners, provenances, lists of exhibitions with dates and places, bibliographical material, lists of supplies bought, storage facilities used. Records pile on records, she wrote, admitting that this tedious side of artistic production had come as something of a surprise to her. It wasn't that Truett disliked writing. She wrote poems and short stories throughout the 1940s and 50s before she became a sculptor and continued to write throughout her life, publishing her journals Daybook in 1982, Turn in 1986, and Prospect in 1996 sorry, in 1996. But Truett's writings elude the practical function of the logbook or manual in order to weave poetic, multi-layered narratives influenced by her favorite author, Marcel Proust. In Truett's journals, accounts of her daily routines and studio practices are imbricated with memories of her childhood, reflections on love and motherhood, meditations on grief and mortality, and speculations on the nature of artistic creativity. References to artistic materials and techniques are relatively rare, consigned to the exhaustive lists she made in the studio. In piecing together these fragmentary remarks, we gain important insights into how Truett constructed and cared for her sculptures, details that could usefully inform their conservation and display. But more compelling to me is Truett's psychic, somatic, and libidinal identification with her materials, which she likens to children, to lovers, to husbands, and most frequently to herself. 
in this paper are considered the distinctive tenor of Truett's writings, which distinguish her sharply from the minimal artists with whom her work was shown in the 1960s. In analyzing Truett's comments on materials and techniques, a new, more wide-ranging set of affinities will emerge with the artists of the Washington Color School, with Asamun Noguchi, and with Joseph Boyce. Finally, I will pay close attention to the recurrent tropes of water and liquidity in Truett's writings, drawing on the writings of philosopher Gaston Bachelard to characterize what he might call her material imagination. Based on diaries written over a period of 18 years, Truett's journals track concomitant shifts in her sculptural production and the type of language she used to describe it. The first daybook is based on diary entries written between 1974 and 1980, but like most of Truett's writings and her sculpture, it continually folds the past into the present. Truett remembers her childhood in coastal Maryland and her education at Bryn Mawr College, where she majored in psychology in 1943. She describes how, towards the end of World War II, she worked as a nurse's aide in a psychiatric hospital and, and um, write, wrote poems and short stories in her spare time. Truett goes on to recount her marriage to James Truett, a journalist, and their relocations to Washington, San Francisco, and Dallas as his career took off during the late 1940s and early 50s. She continued to write and began taking courses in studio art, first at the Institute of Contemporary Arts in Washington and then at the Dallas Museum of Fine Art, later the Dallas Museum of Art. Jewett describes the profound sensuous satisfaction she experienced when working with plaster and clay, going so far as to liken it to the experience of motherhood. She also writes appreciatively of the delicate strength of tools for working clay and plaster, the ways in which they adroitly extend the sensual ability of the hand, their actual beauty in themselves, wire-bound to wood, steel-toothed and curved and pimpled with rasp. But despite these tactile pleasures, Truett would soon abandon conventional sculptural materials and techniques following a career-changing visit to New York City in November 1961. On a trip to the Guggenheim Museum with her friend and fellow artist Mary Pinchot Meyer, Truett saw the work of Ad Reinhardt, Barnett Newman, and other abstract painters for the first time. She recounts this transformative experience in Daybook, and it has been repeated in James Meyer's foundational account of her practice and by many subsequent authors. In the context of this paper, however, it's worth pointing out that Truett's epiphany centered on a new approach to artistic materials. She recalls that she was astonished to note the freedom with which materials of various sorts were being used, more specifically, how they were being put to use. In her own work, Truett had been receptive to the physical properties of plaster or clay, allowing them to guide her sculptural forms. But the artist she saw at the Guggenheim used materials without particular attention to their intrinsic bent, putting them into the service of ideas. Truett resolved to do the same in her own subsequent work. Days after her visit to the Guggenheim, Truett began a sculpture that departed from her earlier work in form, materials, and process. Instead of kneading clay, she began with a mental image, 
a white picket fence of the type she'd encountered as a child in Eastern Maryland. In Daybook, Truett describes how she made a, a life-size drawing of the sculpture she envisaged and took it to a lumber store where she had wooden boards cut to the size of the drawing. She glued the boards together and painted them white to produce her sculpture first, now recognized as a pivotal work that marked the beginning of her mature career. When she returned to the lumber store with two more drawings, a worker suggested that she could have the sculpture fabricated from scratch at the mill across the street. From that point onwards, Truett had her wooden structures made according to her specifications before taking them to the studio where she would paint them meticulously by hand. When her family relocated to Japan from 1963 to 67, Truett experimented briefly with aluminum and industrial ship paint. But upon returning to Washington in 1967, she resumed working in wood and acrylic, materials she would continue to use for the rest of her life. Truett's most comprehensive account of her production process after 1961 appears in her second journal, Turn. Here she writes that unlike her earlier sculptures, her mature work, quote, presents itself whole as if it already existed somewhere in my mind above my head. In the case of sculptures, I then make scale drawings of their dimensions and have the structures fabricated by a cabinet maker. They are made of fine grained seven eighths of an inch plywood, carefully mitered and splined. They are hollow and if they're tall, they're weighted at the bottom so that they will not tip. The insides are sprayed with preservative and they have holes drilled in their hollows so that they can breathe in various temperatures. I paint these structures with a number of coats, sanding with progressively finer sandpapers between each one until I have layered color over them in varying proportions. By way of this process, color is set free into three dimensions as independent of materiality as I can make it. The precision with which Truett deployed her materials was intended to render them unnoticeable so that her sculptures would be perceived as floating columns of pure color. Significantly, this uncharacteristically detailed account of her working process appears in a book that opens with reflections on grief, mortality, and loss. At the beginning of turn, Truett remembers the early years of her marriage to James, their divorce in 1969, and his suicide in 1981, a year before the diary entries collected in the book. Although still in her early 60s, she contemplates her own mortality and describes setting sculptures aside for her children to inherit after she dies. Within this context, Truett's pragmatic account of her materials and techniques could have been written with an eye to her artistic legacy and the future conservation of her sculpture. Later in turn, Truett describes meeting with two curators and the chief conservator here at the National Gallery in Washington to discuss cleaning her sculpture, Spume 1972, for exhibition. And Spume is on view upstairs in the current exhibition. 120 inches tall, spume is a rectangular column painted an iridescent violet blue. It had been 12 years since Truett saw the sculpture and its presence took her aback, prompting what she describes as in an involuntary shudder and making her rock on her feet. This visceral destabilizing effect was uncannily appropriate for a sculpture Truett once likened to an urgent upspringing of water from the ocean into the air. 
In turn, she recalls composing herself and putting her hands in her pockets to echo the laid-back stance of her assembled interlocutors. Quote, practical men with an object to deal with, they wanted information, she writes. How had the structure of the sculpture been fabricated? What sort of wood had been used? What kind of paint? How many coats? How applied? How could the smudges on its surface best be cleaned? The men appeared disconcerted when Truett described how she cleaned her sculptures with soap and water, wiping them down with a clean, damp cloth in the same long, continuous strokes with which I applied the paint. But she in turn became uneasy when, during lunch, quote, the gentlemen leaned back in their chairs and spoke of great artists, long dead, whom they were apotheosizing by exhibiting. <clears throat> Their easy discussion of what they were doing with works of art so bypassed the artist's effort, she writes, that I walked away from the gallery feeling that effort had been discounted. This encounter is subtly gendered in Truett's account with the male conservators and, and curators leaning back in their chairs and mansplaining their achievements to the speechless artist. She goes on to suggest that her work is bothersome to conservators because it is large, yet has a delicate surface that is easily and sometimes even deliberately damaged. In Daybook, Truett notes that visitors had kicked her sculptures or even pushed them over. I've thought a lot about this aspect of my work, she writes, and I wonder sometimes if the vulnerability of my sculptures does not combine with their size to awaken the subtle hostilities evoked when women retain innate delicacy even while exerting their existence. The vulnerability Truett attributes to the materials and her work stands in stark contrast to the attitude of the minimal artists with whom her work was exhibited in the 1960s. In his influential essay, Specific Objects, published in 1965, Donald Judd wrote that in the work he admired, materials, quote, are specific. If they're used directly, they are more specific. Also, they are usually aggressive. There is an objectivity to the obdurate identity of a material. In combination with his striking use of aggression as a term of highest praise, Judd describes materials being deployed by his contemporaries in a manner that is resistant to representation and detached from the personality of the artist. Truett's approach to materials, by contrast, is emphatically subjective and affective. In Daybook, she writes of being haunted by wood, describing running her hands over a carved wooden bench in the grounds of the National Cathedral and pondering the heavenly order of humble materials. While Judd looked to new materials as one way of breaking with the whole U European tradition, it suits me fine if that's all down the drain, he once said. Truett saw herself as part of an art historical lineage and her affinity for wood and paint reflect this. In the second half of turn, she describes her first trip to Europe in the early 1980s. Anticipating her trip while meditating on her favorite color, Truett writes of Marco Polo's discovery of lapis lazuli during the 13th century and the intercontinental trade in this valuable pigment. I do not feel excited as much as matter of fact and right, she remarks in the lead up to her departure for Europe. I know that I'm going to see with my own eyes the history of my own kind, a history that I will absorb as in some mysterious way lapis lazuli attracted unto itself and retained in itself blueness. 
I will myself be ultramarine from beyond the sea. More so than wood or a particular pigment, the substance with which Truett identified most readily was water, the base of the acrylic paint she began to use in 1962. Unlike Judd, who embraced industrial materials like aluminum and plexiglass, Truett turns her attention to technological innovations within the field of art. In Prospect, she describes how, just as in the early 1840s, the manufacture of oil paint in portable tubes enabled artists to work outdoors, the invention of artist quality acrylic paint in the 1950s enabled them to cover large surfaces. Magna, an antecedent to acrylic, first appeared on the market in 1946 and was used by Barnett Newman, Jackson Pollock, and Morris Lewis. Lewis, who Truett knew in Washington, corresponded with the manufacturer, Beaucourt, throughout the 1950s until, in 1960, the company produced a special magna formulated for himself and Kenneth Noland, another friend of Truett's. The vast expanses of brilliant color associated with the Washington Color School painters were made possible by the invention of magna, which could be thinned with turpentine, and later by acrylic, um, which could be diluted in water. Although Truett's sculpture bore a formal resemblance to minimal art, her description of her working processes demonstrates her procedural as well as locational proximity to the Washington Color School. Because it's water-based, she writes, acrylic flows easily, lends itself to my hand. The proportion of pigment to medium can be inflected in virtually infinite proportions, so I can mix the thin layers by way of which I can make it transparent and rich. I use ordinary utensils, glass bowls, and large non-metal kitchen spoons, a tea strainer, and house painting brushes, as well as sable hair brushes. I keep everything very clean, wash and rewash, so whatever touches my work is as fresh and pure as I can make it. Water, as a component of acrylic paint and a means of cleaning her tools, was for Truett both a symbol and an agent of fluidity, clarity, and transparencies. These liquiescent processes are manifested most explicitly in the series of rice paper drawings Truett produced in 1965, during the three-year period she spent in Japan. Having purchased the rice paper from a Meiji-era paper shop in Tokyo, she dipped it in a shallow tray filled with ink uh, before hanging it out to dry on a line in her studio. Once dried, the paper would be dipped in ink of a different color, creating translucent glazes and wavering tide marks across its surface. Somewhat anomalous in Truett's drawing production, these works make drawing a function of liquidity and transparency their wayward lines eluding the control of Truett's exacting hand. Once she returned to Washington, Truett adapted this color glazing technique to give an iridescent finish to sculptures like spume, to which she applied progressively more diluted coats of acrylic until the final layer was a transparent aqueous glaze. The significance of water for Truett extended beyond its use in her artistic materials and studio processes. 
Like spume on display here at the National Gallery, many of Truett's sculptures reference water in their titles, including Platte, which refers to the Platte River, Sea Garden, Full Fathom Five, and Night Naiad, a Greek term for a female nymph who presides over water. The title of Shiplap, 1962, refers to the horizontal wooden boards used as siding on barns and outbuildings, which interlock using a technique once deployed in the construction of boats. The grooves and painted stripes on Truett's sculpture run vertically instead of horizontally, perhaps deliberately obscuring this overt reference. She described Shiplap as being about order, the order that's necessary to do something dangerous. Yet while she noted the necessity of structure for survival in her own daily life, Truett was also aware of the perils of hardening into rigid patterns of thought. She looked to the materiality of water as a means of freeing herself from limiting preconceptions. Remarking on Dora Ashton's assertion that Isamu Noguchi's affinity with stone led him to the heart of matter, Truett suggests in prospect that her identification with water, quote, has led me to consider the continuous transformation of everything. She recalls a restless childhood summer at Lee Haven in Maryland, where she would slip out of the house and walk down to the river on the other side of the peninsula to where, quote, a narrow footpath meandered through milkweed taller than my head, ending nowhere, just stopping where it reached the water. Over the course of time, Truett suggests that she came to identify with the river, imitating its fluidity, its edgelessness. Noting her own tendency towards order and structure, she found that she could trade the solidity of preconceptions for the freshwater tides of life as I lived it along. The lateral layered sculpture Milkweed Run, 1974, with its curious underbelly of acid green, references the milkweed Truett ran through as a child and the innocent pleasure she took in its texture and smell, not knowing that it was poisonous. Like several of Truett's sculptures, Milkweed Run is concerned with the interaction of two elements, earth and water, and the, extent the sensory experiences unique to those literal zones where land and water meet. Nevertheless, it would be wrong to suggest that Truett's abstract sculpture represents the river at Lee Haven, or to posit this set of references as the definitive meaning of Truett's sculpture. Instead, I would argue that her feel for the materiality of this place, its sodden, air, sodden earth, salty air, and aquatic flora, is washed over by other associations supplied by the viewer in a kind of connotative ebb and flow that refuses to settle into fixity. In 1942, the French philosopher Gaston Bachelard published Water and Dreams, an essay on the imagination of matter, one of a series book of books dedicated to each of the four elements. <clears throat> he began this idiosyncratic project by distinguishing between what he calls the formal imagination, which centers on forms and objects, and the material imagination, which is concerned with substances. Focusing predominantly on poetry, Bachelard posits that, quote, besides the images of form, there are images that stem directly from matter. The eye assigns them names, but only the hand truly knows them. 
when forms, mere perishable forms and vain images, perpetual change of surfaces are put aside, these images of matter are dreamt substantially and intimately. Bachelard contends that one cannot dream profoundly with objects. To dream profoundly, one must dream with substances. Water, he suggests, is a substance full of reminiscence and prescient reveries, a statement that could easily be applied to Truett's writings. While Truett's sculptures and drawings of 1961 and 62 conjure images of her native Maryland, white picket fences, pitched roofs, tombstones, shiplap, I want to suggest that her subsequent work is more concerned with substances and sensations that resist conceptualization in formal or pictorial terms. Truett refers to Bachelard's Poetics of Space in Prospect, but we do not know if she read his more obscure book on water. Nevertheless, there are some striking parallels between Bachelard's account of his own water mindset and the artistic identity Truett constructs throughout her published writings. In Water and Dreams, Bachelard recalls following the rivers near his own childhood home in Champagne and the aroma of water mint, conjuring, like Truett's sculptures, Sea Garden, Milkweed Run, and Cresswell, a watery garden where, quote, in the depths of matter, there grows an obscure vegetation. Bachelard observes that it is near water and its flowers that I have best understood that reverie is an ever-emanating universe, a fragrant breath that issues from things through the dreamer. This ever-emanating universe, found also in the novels of Proust, comes close to the rippling associations of Truett's sculptures, which constantly expand our way of seeing. In this regard, it's instructive to compare Truett's writings on materials to those of Joseph Beuys, the German sculpture, sculptor with whom she felt a surprising sense of kinship. In Prospect, she discusses Beuys's 1960 sculpture, Bathtub, his babyhood tub lined with fat, a substance central to the mythology Beuys constructed in his own writings. As a pilot in the Luftwaffe, Beuys famously claimed that upon being shot down, he was rescued by Tartars who covered his body in fat and wrapped him in felt to help him keep warm. In Bathtub, the pieces of fat lining the tub graft this narrative of rebirth onto an object from Boyce's childhood, manifesting his belief, which is recounted by Truett in Prospect, in a molding or sculpting hand that lies beyond everything in the world. By this, Truett writes, I mean creativity in the anthropological sense, contact with elements like water, moving light and heat. Boyce has been criticized by art historians, including Benjamin Buchlow, for restricting and even dictating the way in which his sculptures should be interpreted via his allegorical use of substances and his constant insinuation of his own body into a network of myth. In Boyce's self-mythology, substances are anchored to specific meanings within a rigorous system of signification. But Truett's understanding of Boyce's sculpture is somewhat different. Rather than limiting her encounter with bathtub to the interpretative framework supplied by Boyce, Truett sets off on her own chain of associations, recalling a similar tub in which she bathed as a child, 
and a moist mixture of vapour and iron and to feel the buoyancy of warm water, lifting my whole body all at once into delicious mobility. Her childhood memory resonates with Bachelard's assertion that our first ardent belief is in the well-being of the body. It's in the flesh and organs that the first material images are born. The child, Bachelard writes, is a born materialist. His first dreams are dreams of organic substances. While Boyce sought to give form to those substances, describing his theory of sculpture in terms of a passage from chaos to an ordered state, Truett saw herself as moving in the other direction, from an inclination towards structure to a deliberate identification with fluidity and flux. In conclusion, I'd like to point out that Truett associated water with vision and a particular way of viewing the world. She described Whale's Eye, 1969, as being about living the life of a whale, citing a line from Matthew Arnold's poem, The Forsaken Merman, sail and sail with unshut eye around the world forever and I. A stout blue column, 60 inches high, Whale's Eye is painted an intense ultramarine blue. Truett's working drawings show how she repainted the top of the column to give it a subtle sheen that becomes apparent as the viewer moves around the sculpture. Like so many of Truett's sculptures, it requires an attentive viewer to catch these subtleties of colour and finish, a viewer possessed, like Arnold's whale, of an unflinching gaze and an open mind. Remembered Sea of 1974 spreads laterally, like Milkweed Run, to suggest a horizon line, an image that punctuates Truett's writings and some of her drawings. The various shades of blue combine with the layered structure to suggest something like a coastal shelf as the thickness of this low-slung sculpture gradually falls away. Truett described the work as being concerned with my concept of the sea, and of course, the very slight but unmistakable pun in my inner self between S-E-A and S-E-E. -E. It's what you see with your inner eye. For Bachelard too, water is associated with the inner vision of reminiscence and reverie. In our eyes, he writes, it is water that dreams. While her contemporaries emphasize the object itself, deliberately limiting illusion and metaphor, Truett's writings overflow with mnemonic associations. Like her sculptures, these deliquescent, limpid and reflective texts plumb the depths of Truett's distinctive material imagination. This has been a National Gallery of Art podcast.